The LG V60 is here, and I've been toting it around town, and by town I mean my living room, for three weeks. So what's left to do but talk about it? There's one particular feature on this phone that gets most of my airtime because I love, love, love it. Find out more here on the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd. Later this evening, I'll be serving up my full review of the LG V60, the first of what I hope are many gadgets I can bring to your ear holes. But first, as always, it's time to dive into the news of the week. So away we go. Early in the week, we got reports out of the UK saying that 5G cell towers were being burned, as in intentionally set on fire. Several towers around the country fell victim to this arson, and you'll never guess the reason why. Coronavirus. You see, some thick-headed mouth breeders on the internet have been touting the dangers of cell phones for years. How long exactly? Well, about as long as cell phones have existed, minus three days. The dangerous radiation of cell phones has been shouted from soapboxes around the world, usually from people who want to sell you something to protect you from those dangerous emanations, or by people who don't understand science or logic or generally not being a chucklehead. Well, 5G is the latest victim of all this, and what's the evidence to back all this up? Well, Wuhan, China is one of the first markets to roll out 5G, and that's where the virus came from originally. Of course, how that explains the presence of the virus in non-5G markets, like markets that barely have 4G? Well, that's enough out of you, mister. That's your brain fried with 5G. My takeaway is basically that it's just good to know that idiocy isn't limited to the United States. Turns out ignoramuses are everywhere, and I think it's because we keep letting them fuck. And it gets worse because celebrities are getting into the game too, with folks such as Amanda Holden, Woody Harrelson, and John Cusack, and spoiler alert, I've only heard of two of those, but they've all joined the bandwagon as well, reposting stupidity for all their legions of dumbass followers. So it turns out Woody Harrelson's original role on Cheers might have been a little too on the nose, and John Cusack is a jackass, and by the way, also a terrible tipper. But I mean, come on, look at the guy. So what do we do when morons start burning 5G towers? We call upon the WHO, the World Health Organization, to tell people that they're being nincompoops because COVID-19 is not spread by 5G. That's right, someone at the WHO had to take time out of their day of tracking plagues around the world to sit down and teach the dipshits that they're being dipshits and they should all stop being dipshits. Sorry, I get vulgar when stupid people take up the time of smart people when they should be off doing smart people things instead of dealing with stupid people. And seriously, why don't we make people take an IQ test before they're allowed to have children? Skype wants to compete with Zoom because Zoom is printing its own money these days. As a matter of fact, I'm writing this part of the script while on a Friday night Zoom meeting playing cards. One of the benefits of Zoom is it allows you to start up a meeting with no login, whereas up until recently, Skype required a Skype account. It was a minor blocker, but not insignificant since Zoom required nothing of the sort. Now, Skype allows you to create a meeting and send out a code and password similar to Zoom, no account required. Coming from someone who podcasts frequently with guests, this is a headache. Last year when I was chatting with a guest to come on to a different podcast, I had to walk her through creating a Discord account and she was like, you know, 
this is a bad experience. And I was like, yeah, you're totally right. That's when I started using Zencaster, this podcast not sponsored by Zencaster, and Zoom, this podcast not sponsored by Zoom. Could I go back to Skype? Sure, now I could, but over the years, Skype has proven to be fairly bad when it comes to connectivity strength, and you only get several hundred chances to make a first impression, after all. Quibi, or Quibi, or Quibi, or whatever you want to call it, the 10-minute or less video streaming service launched this past week, and boy, does it have issues. In the tradition of Disney+, Plus, Quibi gained a ton of subscribers on day one due largely to the 90-day free trial it started off with. Then, I wasn't able to use the service for another few hours. T-Mobile, who is my carrier, is also offering a free year of Quibi with a multi-line plan, and when I tried to sign up for that, I ran into an issue that I already had an account and they needed to create a new one or some such nonsense. I haven't actually taken the time to correct this and use the service, which goes to show just how excited I am for it. Honestly, it looks pretty decent, and I want to get it going sometime soon, but just not enough to put off, say, an LG V60 review. Whatever the case, these are just growing pains for a brand new service. It's always nice when a new company can avoid these issues, but it's never surprising when they can't. Apple has been pushing into the augmented reality and virtual reality space in a major way over the past couple of years. Now it looks to be buying up a live event VR company called NextVR. The company's goal is to produce live events for people to watch using a VR headset, and honestly, that may be the only way any of us get to watch a basketball game for the next little while. Some rumors suggest that Apple may not even be interested in the event stuff, but may actually be after the technology that the company uses to upscale video streams, which is decidedly less sexy. Whatever the case, the sale isn't final, nor has it even moved past the rumor mill at this point, so it may be nothing, but it also may be something. Will it finally make the LiDAR on the back of the iPad Pro worth something? Doubtful, at least in the short term. Samsung launched its new $1,000 Chromebook this week after announcing the laptop back at CES, also known as the last time anyone was able to stand near each other. Now the reviews have started rolling in, and unfortunately initial reviews suggest that the battery life is pretty terrible, managing just 4-5 to five hours of use, which isn't even a full workday. That's definitely no bueno for a laptop running Chrome OS that costs $1,000, and did I mention that this Chromebook costs $1,000? It costs $1,000, and just what the hell? The push into the premium Chromebook space remains, even though very, 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 very few people actually want them. But I guess if you're one of them, go for it. Just make sure you don't leave the charger at home. TCL is launching three new smartphones under its own brand. The TCL 10 5G, the TCL 10 Pro, and the TCL 10 L are all coming in Q2. And the most interesting part of this trio of phones is that none of them will cost more than $500, which means, yes, you'll be able to get a 5G-capable phone for less than $500 in the United States sometime fairly soon. This is a big step towards affordable 5G, which is a great thing. Of course, during my LG V60 review, I'll talk a little bit about T-Mobile's 5G offering, so stay tuned for that. For right now, it's important to note that paying less than $500 for a 5G phone is a good thing, because I'm not sure it's worth paying any more than that for 5G connectivity, and it might not even be worth the $500. 
For those of you who are not aware, TCL is the parent company responsible for cheap TVs everywhere, but also the smartphone brands Alcatel and the revived and, second time discontinued, BlackBerry brand. Plus, we talked about TCL back in our first episode with Michael Fisher about the folding phone concepts that TCL is working on. Needless to say, I've been a big fan of what TCL has been doing in the smartphone space, and I'm excited to see what's coming from its own branded line of phones. Will we have the opportunity to review them? We'll have to wait and see. But I, for one, sure hope so. Ars Technica posted a study showing that hackers can fool fingerprint sensors around 80% of the time these days, and that's no bueno. But those claims come with a huge caveat, and let's just say a hacker would have to be highly motivated to get at your selfies. Hackers used fake fingerprints to break into smartphones, and those fingerprints took around 50 different variations to find one that worked reliably well, and even then, they only worked 80% of the time. Now, keep in mind, on an iPhone, five failed attempts result in you having to enter your passcode, so this is not a foolproof hack by any stretch of the imagination. All the same, it confirms what many of us suspected. Fingerprints aren't the best method of locking your phone. If you really want to be safe, create a passcode, or even better, a passphrase. Then again, if you don't want to have to do that every time you unlock your phone or buy something, maybe the fingerprint is good enough. How about we just don't make enemies and you'll be fine, okay? Okay. This week, Google started rolling out Chrome OS 81 and then, whoopsie, rolled the server back to version 80 because there were issues. This is the second time this year, and by the way, it's only April, that a major Chrome OS release was rolled back, and Google wonders why we put off updates. Anyway, one of the major bugs in this release was in the toast notification that popped up telling you what was new in the version. When users clicked on that, the machine crashed. So yeah, that's kind of a whoops. Chrome Unbox lays out the various ways that you can still get this version through beta channels and developer channels, but you know, you probably shouldn't. Just kick back until Google gives it the okay, again, and then maybe wait another week or so. Our full review of the LG V60 drops after the news this week, and to get us all warmed up, Joe Hindi, former podcast partner and fellow LG V60 owner, breaks down a lot of what I have to say about the device, though his perspective is a tad bit more rosy than mine. But he breaks down 10 things the LG V60 does well and 5 things it does not. We'll get to my thoughts on the device in just a bit. It is our top story of the show, after all. But for now, I just wanted to offer Joe's perspective on the device because, you know, he's awesome. Oh, you poor, poor Moto Razor. Ron Amadeo over at Ars Technica got his Moto Razor review unit in, finally, and the screen broke less than 24 hours later. Ouch. Now, I mean, here's the thing. It's super easy to write an article called My Razor Broke Within the First 24 Hours. And yeah, this is brand new technology and a first-generation device. You should go into this expecting things to not be perfect and hope to be pleasantly surprised. The piece I'd rather read would be called My First Razor Broke After Just 24 Hours and Here's What Motorola Did About It. You see... The first is a zero-effort hit piece about why foldables suck and Motorola sucks and being trapped in your house with two kids under the age of 13 sucks and there isn't enough rum in the world. 
Rather, as a prospective owner of a Moto Razor, I'd like to know what assurances are in place in case anything goes wrong. That would be a good, worthy piece to write, but instead, the same guy who wrote the review of the Galaxy Flip titled, I Think I Hate Flip Phones, decides to write a piece about how Razor sucks and Moto sucks, and I don't think we were surprised by this, so please, just pass me the rum. Google launched the free version of Stadia, but upped the ante by offering free Stadia Pro to all for two months because please, for the love of God, will someone please play Stadia Pro? Stadia is Google's game streaming platform that allows you to throw down any old hunk of hardware and play high-powered games streamed from the cloud. It's a great idea, but it's also one that's very, very slow to take off and very slow to bring on developers, which makes it slow to take off, which makes it slow to bring on developers, and and chicken meat egg. Disney's subscription service, Disney Plus, eclipsed 50 million users this past week, which caused Disney's stock to surge upwards by almost 7%. Disney really needed that to happen, because as I mentioned before, pretty much everything that Disney does to make money requires a lot of people to gather together, and people aren't allowed to do that these days. Personally, in my house, Disney Plus has not been used all that frequently. It's probably a little less used than the likes of Amazon Prime and Hulu, and seriously, the only reason I still have Netflix is because T-Mobile gives it to me for free. I think I'm going to rewatch the Marvel movies once more, but that's about all it's got for me, at least until The Mandalorian Season 2 comes out. Regardless, congrats on Disney to figure out a way to make money during COVID, and please don't let Apple buy you. Please, please... Don't let Apple buy you. Last week, we talked about how Zoom multiplied its user base by around 20 times or so, and as such, a lot of security vulnerabilities came to light. Well, Zoom is putting a feature hold in place for the next 90 days while it focuses on plugging those holes in the dam. That's probably a good call. Once again, though, it would have been nice if these holes had been plugged before 200 million users started to use it, but better late than never, I guess. You can bet Zoom will be under the microscope from here on out. Get it? Zoom? Microscope? <laughs> I'm sorry. Microsoft announced to some internal employees that it would not be shipping Windows 10X on any devices this year due to the COVID pandemic. Windows 10X is the version of the operating system designed for dual-screen devices, so by extension, that probably also means that the Surface Neo, Microsoft's dual-screen tablet it showed off last year, will also not ship this year. We're not sure what this means for the Surface Duo, the dual-screened Android phone that Microsoft showed off at the same presentation. I, for one, am very excited to see these devices hit the store, and I'm hoping to get my hands on one or both for a review, but that'll all have to wait until next year, apparently. And finally, apparently it takes a pandemic to get Google and Apple playing nicely together because that's just what they're doing by developing a joint venture to use Bluetooth LE to track the spread of this pandemic and to notify you if anyone you interacted with tests positive for the disease. The way it works is it uses anonymized tokens that are stored on the device, and when two devices come close together, they basically say what's up to each other. Later on, if you test positive for COVID, you enter that into the app, and that token has to make the embarrassing phone call back to you and be like, hey, remember that Rolling Stones concert back in 82 and we got hooked up? Well, I just found out that I have whatever, and you should get tested too. 
But this method is a lot more high-tech and it could help quickly identify new cases and perhaps help get this thing under control. Of course, right now, when it would be most useful, it's basically a beta app that you need to download and update manually. In the future, they might be able to work this tech into the operating system itself and that would make it much more useful. In the meantime, if you can get the app, get it, and keep it running, and update it for the love of Pete. The LG V60 is LG's latest flagship to hit the shelves, and fortunately, unlike the last LG phone, it's hitting carrier store shelves. Plus, it carries with it a newly forming legacy, helping it stand out from the crowd if you opt to spend the extra money. So how does that phone stack up? Let's find out in the official review of the LG V60, coming up next. You might be asking yourself, how can I help out a show like this? Well, right off the bat, the best way you can help me out is by leaving a review for the podcast. I'll be honest, I'd prefer if you did it in an Apple podcast because that's where a lot of people are going to be coming from. But if you can't do that, you can leave reviews in Stitcher, Podbean, or Podchaser. Those will help too. They'll help other people discover this podcast, and since this is a brand new show, discovery is a wonderful thing. There are more great options for helping me out at benefitofadowd.com slash support. That's benefitofadowd.com slash support. You'll get a list of all my affiliations and monetization options, all wrapped up in a neat little package at benefitofadowd.com slash support. I hope you visit, I hope you review, and as always, I thank you for listening. been a big fan of LG for some time now. To me, in the smartphone space, LG has always been the first alternative to Samsung in terms of the Android smartphone space. Some might argue that the Google Pixel should hold that honor, and that's fair. Others may argue that OnePlus, or until recently Huawei, might be a better comparison. Also fair, except Huawei has fallen mightily of late, so they're off the radar in that sense. LG made a big misstep with the LG G5 and its removable mod system. Not that mods are a bad idea, but LG's implementation of them was... Okay, it was mostly terrible. But since then, LG has been fairly conservative in terms of design and features. The LG G6 and the LG G7 were both quality phones but fairly ho-hum in the design department. There was never really anything bad about them, but never really anything mind-blowing either. Then, last year, LG introduced the LG V50, and almost as an afterthought, LG introduced a second screen case that you could add to your smartphone, and voila, instant productivity machine. In my world, that's when LG really started to get interesting again. Put into context, the LG V50 with a dual screen case, a case by the way that only worked for certain variants of the LG V50 Americans need not apply. The LG V50 with a dual screen case launched in a world where the Samsung Galaxy Fold had launched and then been recalled, the Huawei Mate X had not yet been released, though by this time some journalists had actually held the thing, and the Royal FlexPi existed, but <laughs> anyway. But here was this mainstream phone by a mainstream manufacturer that could open up a dual screen and have all this cool stuff going on. It wasn't the first dual screen phone ever, but it was the most recent and by far 
the best implementation. Fast forward a few months and enter the LG G8X at IFA 2019, also toting a dual screen, but for the price of an iPhone, $699. $699 for a dual screened phone. Still, no Galaxy Fold, the Huawei Mate X was on sale, theoretically somewhere, but Google services were left behind frantically waving their arms on the dock as the SS Huawei pulled out into the river and boy that was a long way to go to get that analogy to land. Anyway, the only problem the LG G8X had was a lack of US carrier support on launch. Now let's fast forward a bit more. The Galaxy Fold is out, the Galaxy Flip is out, the Moto Razr has launched. Foldables are a thing, a very expensive thing, but still a thing. Now here comes the LG V60 ThinQ, and again, here comes that dual-screened case. Now, this is probably the longest intro into a review that you'll watch, read, or listen to, but I thought it was important to put this phone into perspective. Is it a foldable competitor? Well, it kind of is, at least that's how I see it. While this is a review of the LG V60 in and of itself, this phone does not exist in a vacuum. It exists in a world of foldables, so sometimes that's how I'm gonna draw my conclusions. But if you're an LG fan, don't worry, most of those conclusions are pretty good. Spoiler alert. So let's finally, finally dive into it. This is the LG V60 podcast review. Now, if I don't start off this review by talking about that second screen, it would be disingenuous AF, because in my world, this phone is about that second screen case. Maybe you don't care about the second screen. I get that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But for now, I just wanted to give you the landscape. This review is largely about the LG V60, and the LG V60 is largely about that second screen. If you don't care about that second screen, that's fine, I promise. I'm just gonna get this off my chest and move on. But you might wanna skip the next two or three minutes and listen to the rest. When I started testing the LG V50, I had a few, Picadillas about the device. The second screen only opened to three configurations, 90, 180, and 360 degrees. There was no tent mode. The rear-mounted fingerprint reader made unlocking the phone very difficult because if the case was opened, it blocked the sensor. If it was closed, who cares if the phone is unlocked? The LG V60 solved both those problems. The hinge on the V60 is much more laptop-like, stiff, so that you can open it to any angle. It's not quite stiff enough to support the body of the phone with that second screen, so if you're using this as a tripod, that second screen is your media screen. Also, the LG V60 comes with a fast and accurate in-screen fingerprint sensor. Normally, I'm not a fan of in-screen fingerprint sensors, and this is no exception, but they are improving, and this is one of the best I've used so far. COVID tip, the fingerprint sensor works through disposable rubber gloves, so that's a win. Now, photography is still a bit of a headache with a dual screen case. It needs to be open, but not all the way open, lest it block the camera. The second screen has a notch in it, even though there are no camera sensors in that notch. This is a cost-saving measure, allowing LG to use the same panel for both the phone and for the case. It totally makes sense, but at the same time, it's laughable. LG uses the dual screen intelligently in a lot of ways. When you use LG's stock keyboard app and you hold the phone horizontally, the keyboard appears on the bottom screen, kind of like a teeny tiny little laptop. 
Some apps can extend the canvas across both screens with, as Michael Fisher calls it, the gutter in between the two displays, but some apps, like YouTube, don't extend across the displays intelligently. When you turn the screens horizontally, YouTube doesn't do the thing that makes sense, which is play the video in the top screen while the comments and everything else are in the bottom. Rather, the video bleeds down into the bottom of the screen by about half, so the comments are barely visible underneath. The funny thing, YouTube is an app that is supposedly optimized for two-screen use. Microsoft's dual-screen Duo phone is set to come out later this year, and I'm particularly interested in seeing if LG can utilize the dual screen in some smart ways that Microsoft has already shown. Not sure if that's proprietary code or what, but it's only a matter of time before LG or Google or both steal it, so that'll be a win. On the bottom of the dual screen case is a magnetic connector that allows for charging and data flow. The magnetic connector is an adapter that fits over a USB Type-C connector and connects to a proprietary port on the bottom of the case. I wish the magnet was stronger here. When the phone is resting on a table and you go to pick it up, often the cable comes undone and drops. In the car, using Android Auto, the connector can be a little finicky getting that initial connection, but once it does, it seems to stay fairly solid. Again, if you pick up your phone in the car, it will fall off and disrupt all Android Auto function, which sucks, but you really shouldn't be picking up your phone anyway and keep your eyes on the road! And finally, a few other notes. The dual screen case is easy to connect and remove, but it makes this already gigantic phone even bigger. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but my initial impression of this phone is that it's one big chunk of a phone, and the case adds a considerable amount of extra bulk. It's not for the faint of heart to be sure. Also, the dual screen case does not share the IP68 weather resistance of the phone itself, which is a bit of a bummer. If you're visiting a water park, sometime in the very distant future, when COVID is just a story we tell to our frightened grandchildren, leave that case at home. Of course, by then you'll have a different phone, so probably never mind. From a design standpoint, the dual screen is a bit of a nightmare. The magnetic power and data port on the bottom of the case is not centered, and none of the button covers line up with the buttons on the actual phone. The button covers work just fine, but there's a slight gap in the side of the case where you can see the phone buttons, and you can see that they don't line up. It's the kind of thing that you can't unsee. Neither of these two issues affect the functionality of the case, so if you're not a design nerd, then there's nothing to see here. But for OCD people like me, it's a little annoying. All told, the dual screen is a great addition to this phone, and it gives the phone a personality that it otherwise wouldn't have. Take the dual screen off, and it's yet another Android phone. Is that worth an extra $100? I would pay it. Unfortunately, the fact that it does cost an extra $100 probably means that most people won't shell out that extra cash, and this will probably go the way of wireless charging for years and years until the darn thing gets included in the box. Should you spend the extra money? I would. Will you? I kind of hope so. It's a very well done and a very well executed concept, so if you're going to go out on a non-Samsung or non-Apple limb, you may as well go out far enough to touch the leaves. And once again, I went a long way to make that analogy land. So, now that we're seven minutes into this review of the LG V60, maybe we should you know, spend some time actually talking about the LG V60. And I'm sorry, but if I'm being totally honest, the LG V60 is basically all about that second screen. Because when you just get the main screen, there's nothing that really sets it apart from an air quote, typical phone. Don't get me wrong, there are some highlights and we'll cover those for sure. But once you take the phone out of a dual screen case, here's what you'll get. 
Right off the bat, we'll start with the specs because spec nerds love them specs. So let's spec it out. You've got your Snapdragon 865 processor with accompanying, and mandatory I might add, 5G modem. Couple that with an Adreno 650 GPU and you're loaded for bear. Under the hood, you've got 128 gigabytes of onboard storage that's expandable up to two terabytes with micro SD expansion. This is all powered by a 5,000 milliamp hour battery residing under a full HD plus screen with a 20.5 by nine aspect ratio and weighs in at 218 holy crap grams. This is a tall, heavy chunk of a phone and that's without the dual screen case. Some other goodies you get along with this phone are wireless charging, a headphone jack with quad DAC, and not only is this phone IP68 weather resistant, but it's also mil standard 810G spec as well. This is a tall, heavy, tough chunk of a phone. A review unit comes in the classy white and classy blue is also an option. The 1080p screen comes with a single teardrop notch at the top, just a single tiny notch holding a single rear shooting camera. The dual screen, as I mentioned earlier, also has a notch with no camera built in. The phone sports Gorilla Glass 6 on the front and back with aluminum trim around the sides. The power button flies solo on the right side with a volume rocker and dedicated Google Assistant button on the left. One thing I've noticed is that the Assistant button and the Google Assistant on the LG phone in general tend to not behave all that well when connected via Bluetooth to a car audio system. It's an oddly specific quirk, but there you go. Getting back to the hardware, the final note is, as I mentioned before, the fingerprint sensor, which is fast, accurate, and works through medical gloves. It's still an underscreen fingerprint sensor, which is to say, it's still not that good, but we are making strides in that department. I can confidently say that this is one of the better underscreen fingerprint sensor implementations that I've used, even if my T-Mobile branded LG V60 has a fingerprint sensor animation that looks a lot like a certain competitor's logo. I won't name any names, but it rhymes with Fay, Flea, and C. Before we move on from the hardware, let's take a moment to talk about that display. This is a 6.8 inch monster that dwarfs even my Samsung Galaxy S10 5G, which to date is the biggest phone I've used. The screen itself is 1080p at 60 hertz, which I have long said is perfectly fine with me, but so you know, and I'm sure you do, there are better options out there. We're not quite to the point of 90 hertz or GTFO, but we're not far off from there. In my world, this is not a problem, but once again, this phone does not live in a vacuum. In a world of 4K displays and 120 hertz refresh rates, there is nothing here to write home about. And in fact, it's almost a reason to talk your parents out of coming over to visit for the weekend. But it's a very capable display and as bright and color accurate as you could ask for. On the software side, I really like LG's implementation of Android 10. This actually goes back to last fall when my LG V50 got the update as well. Finally, 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 I get independent volume controls for independent apps. The main benefit here is that I can have a video playing at full blast and then switch over to Clash Royale, which is set to 2% so I won't blow out my eardrums. Yay! Android 10 brought LG more in line with a stock Android experience. Full disclosure, I tried out LG's gesture navigation setup for about six and a half minutes before I switched back to the familiar three buttons. Like the fingerprint sensor, that's not a condemnation of LG, that's a condemnation of gestures. On the plus side, and this lies kind of somewhere between hardware and software, but I decided to throw it in here, LG Pay. Now, somehow it escaped my notice that LG Pay 
can use MST technology to, air quotes, swipe a magnetic card reader similar to Samsung Pay, and that is cool as hell. LG Pay is accessible by a swipe up from the bottom or from the side, which is how I have it set up, and just like any other NFC payment system, you authenticate it and hold it up to the terminal. The main difference here is that MST allows us to work on readers that don't have NFC built in. There are some caveats to that. You can't quite leave your wallet at home just yet, but a whole world of magnetic readers opens before your eyes with MST tech. So bravo to LG for including that, but you know, shame on the US for not adopting NFC countrywide. As for performance, overall performance on the V60 is quite good, and I've never been one for benchmark scores. A dozen other reviews will tell you about the whatever 634,522 Nerdbench score, as if that matters. Of course, it occurs to me that an audio-only podcast, benchmark scores would probably be pretty easy to just read off. Oh well, personal prejudices for the win, I guess. One quirk that I can't quite put my finger on is the game Clash Royale. The phone tends to lag for some reason. I've never seen hiccups like that before in the game, except when the internet coverage was spotty. I don't think that's the case here, I just think it's one of those bugaboos that can't readily be explained. I talked to a couple of other reviewers and no one else seemed to notice that issue. Whatever, it's probably nothing, but it happened with regularity, so I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you about the rage quits it caused. Did I mention that this phone was rated for a mil-standard A10G? Okay, good. Moving on to battery life, most reviewers will tell you that this is a battery champ, two-day phone, hands down. That has not been the case for me. Oh, it's not bad. I've never actually had a day when I had to charge before going to bed, and screen on time averaged around six and a half hours, so that's not bad, especially when you consider I always use the dual screen case. It's a little silly, but it makes sense that screen on time represents any screen on time, whether it's one screen or both. I kind of wish it accounted for having more than one screen on because that would dramatically skew the results. I'd like to spend some time without the dual screen phone case, but right now, this is the only case I have for the phone, and you can't find an LG V60 case on Amazon that delivers before May, and I have no idea what that's about. But it's probably a better conversation had somewhere else. Overall, the six and a half hours that I average falls in the great, but not unbelievable category, especially since I spent most of my time at home on Wi-Fi rather than out and about on 5G. And speaking of 5G, this phone is 5G capable, and yes, I understand that this is probably something I should have said at the beginning of the review, but here we are. I used this phone for around three weeks on T-Mobile's 5G network using my own personal SIM card. And while we're here, I should also mention that the LG V60 review sample was provided to me by LG, and no editorial oversight was granted for this review. My opinions are my own. Now, on to the 5G. T-Mobile's 5G network is not great. It's not bad, but if you can find a noticeable difference between 5G and LTE, you're a smarter person than I. This is not necessarily a bad thing, and now that the Sprint-T-Mobile merger is over, it will only get better as time marches on. But if you ask me today what the benefits are of T-Mobile 5G over T-Mobile's LTE network, my answer would be it's worth every extra penny that you pay. Which is to say, no extra pennies, because T-Mobile currently does not charge extra for 5G access. So that's fun, but let's cut to the chase here. On a phone, you need a great camera, so let's talk about the LG V60's camera. Is it great? Eh, not really. 
The LG V60 camera is somewhere between good and really good and does some neat stuff that we'll talk about for sure. First, let's chat numbers. This phone has two and a half camera sensors on the back. There's a 64 megapixel main shooter, which pixel bins down to 16 megapixels. And there's a 13 megapixel ultra wide sensor. There's also a time of flight sensor, which isn't really a sensor. So it's kind of like half a sensor. The photos that the phone is capable of are really good. Like many phones, the camera has trouble with darkness, but unlike many phones, that darkness doesn't necessarily have to be in low light situations. I'm talking about brightly lit indoor photos that still have a certain amount of grain in the shadowy areas. Highlights tend to get blown out quite a bit. In the dark, LG added an adjustable night mode, which is really nice, meaning you can crank the artificial brightness up or down depending on how you like your low light photos. I'm more of a brighter is better kind of guy, but others prefer a more air quote, this is how it looked when I saw it approach, which is totally fine. I'm not judging. The time of flight sensor is there for portrait photos and this 3D art effect photos where the foreground floats above the background. You sort of get a parallax effect, which is neat, but of limited use, I would imagine. I love good portrait shots and the LG V60 does as good a job with those as other cameras I've tested. Focus on the camera seems to be razor sharp, except when the subject is moving. Again, nothing really surprising there. Switching between focus points is a little bit on the slow side compared to others in this space, but once that focus locks, it locks. Overall, I'd say that the LG V60 takes great social media shots, which, come on TikTokers, that's what we're all after, right? You won't blow any of these photos up into poster size shots, and the 4x6s out of the old photo printer will look just fine. So where does that leave us? I love this phone, and I stand by the word delightful that I used over on the Android Central podcast a few days ago. Is this the best phone that you can buy right now? No. Is it pretty great for the price? Absolutely. If this phone existed in a vacuum, I would recommend it hands down. But it does not. It's still $400 cheaper than the Samsung Galaxy S20 Plus, but I bet you could buy a case for the S20 Plus on launch day. Just saying. But Samsung is not who LG will be fighting in this arena. Actually, LG's main competitor will be launching a new phone in just a couple of days, and that phone is the OnePlus 8. I say this because by all reports, if the rumors are true, the OnePlus 8 will have a lot of the same features for a similar price point with far less compromises than the LG V60 minus the dual screen case. Is a dual screen case enough to carry the LG V60 forward? I'm honestly not so sure. I love it. I spent half of my review talking about it. But is it for everyone? I don't think so. The LG V60 exists in a weird space right now. It's kind of sort of competing with foldables with its dual screen case, but it's also kind of sort of competing with OnePlus at the price point. But it's making a lot more compromises to accommodate that dual screen case. In short, LG is betting that the dual screen case will be a hit, and it's gone a long way towards making that happen. I'm happy that the LG V60 exists, but I also understand that dual screens are not for everyone. It's very useful when it's in use, and it's a much better step forward into the space, but is it a big enough step to make it a success? That's the question that has yet to be answered.
So that's going to do it for this episode of the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Once again, I'd like to offer my thanks to LG for the review unit of the LG V60. As mentioned, LG received no editorial oversight of this review. These opinions are entirely my own. And if these are the kinds of opinions you'd like to hear more of, please visit benefitofadoubt.com support to find easy ways that you can support the show. Be sure to leave a review for the podcast so more people can enjoy the show along with you. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for subscribing and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.